At a young age, Randy Tao was connected to baseball and fishing. At 10, he built his first fly rod, which efforts would evolve to a real signature piece to his varied income. His fishing dexterity was extraordinary, winning some of the biggest tournaments inshore and offshore. Over 30 years ago, we started fishing against each other, and in my right hand was a rod he'd built. Here's the story we hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Uh, Randy Tao, it's great to see you on the uh, Millhouse podcast. Man, I'm happy to be a part of it. We go way back together. Yeah, uh, we do. I remember the first time I met you, um, I think I was fishing with Harry, and we were in Key West for a bay bone with a slam. Slam. I saw you walking across the lobby, and I thought, wow, that's Randy Tao. <laughs> <laughs> Well. And that was uh, that was my first, uh, because I'd been fishing with Harry for quite a while, but I've never been around tournaments, and I was just so overwhelmed by everybody. You know, all you guys had such great names in this in this world. Um, it's great to have you on the podcast. We can talk about a little bit of tournaments that we fished against each other through the years. But before we get into all that, I know that you were very close to a dear friend of all of ours, Billy Knowles, uh, who passed this last year, or just recently. Um Talk to me about Billy and what kind of a special man he was and what kind of a relationship you had with him. Well, you know, when I first moved here, he was one of the very first that was known being a guide, lived down here, and uh, kind of took me under his wing, actually through Hal Chittam. And uh, when I moved here, I had a rod shop where I was building rods and I was fishing on a charter boat out of Bud Mary's called the It's Okay with Oz Keggy. Moved down with him in the early 80s. And um, Chittam was coming by because he liked the fishing rods. And he says, hey, I got a couple of friends of mine that want to come check your stuff out. So we brought over Billy Knowles and Hank Brown. So Billy and I just hit it off. You know, we just kind of had the same ideas and sh shared the same passions. And and uh, over the years, we developed a really strong friendship and bond like a father figure. That's what know, I thought. Really. Um, <coughs> did, did he... You guys first started fishing the Cape before most people. I think Billy was one of the first ones out yeah. on that side of the water. Was he helping you as far as your career, fishing career, as where to fish, how to the, fish? You know, what was 
interesting with Billy, for example, he'd never tell me where to go. He'd never say, go do this or go do that. He would tell me, son, go do your homework and you go figure it out. And I'd be like, but figure it out where? Where To the left, to the right, you know, 100 yards, 500 yards. He goes, you'll figure it out. Did you ever chase him out there and find out where he was going? No, I didn't have to chase him because, you know. His boat was too fast. <laughs> well, it, it, <laughs> it, was, it, it was at times. And, you know, when mine was faster, he didn't like it. Yeah. And when his was faster, he was, you know, a peacock. So what happens yeah. if you ask them, you know, do you like this spot on a low tide or a high tide or a falling or a rising? If you ask them those questions, would he be very willing to give you the answers and to his experience? Not not really. No, not really. He We, we would talk about it. And, you know, looking back at this, and I met Billy 40 years ago, um, and we talked every day. You know, that was one of the things that is real hard for me right now is not talking to him. You know, I pick up my phone, I go to call him. You know, he's not here. Just every day we talked about something. And back then it was the same. You know, what'd you see? You know, and I would tell him what I saw and, you know, he would kind of tell me his version of it. You should have told him, do your homework. No, <laughs> what you I, saw. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't disrespect him. Yeah, for sure. It, and and it would maybe after a while it would have been funny, you know. But in the beginning, I was a sponge. I was just taking in everything that was happening, and you know, he really laid the groundwork as a guide how to build a business and how to keep your people coming back. And that guy on the bow of your boat is number one right now. You know, he's paying you money to go fishing. You do everything you can to make it work. And you have a good day with him because you want him back. Mm -hmm. And he was really big on this, the repeat business and how to structure that and how to talk. You get back to the Lorelei, you put your boat on the trailer, you go home. You don't go up there and tell everybody what you did. If your customers want to go up there and talk about your day, that's fine. So my life, I would, I would come in from fishing. I would put my boat on the trailer. I'd go home. Usually had fishing rods to do. And then later on had a family and, you know, had responsibility there. But I didn't spend any time at the bar at Lorelei. I mean, every now and then I might have a beer with somebody, you know, mm -hmm. an old friend or something. But he instilled a lot of the the structure to be a professional guide and to be good at your business with, uh, you know, how to treat your customers. He was big on that. So he was your 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 biggest mentor then. Oh, 100% Initially. back then. And and when we talk about spots, you know. It was kind of interesting because when you talk about fishing the Cape and all that stuff, I educated him, at, you know, toward the end. And Azo and I, when we had our rain in the Holly and a lot of the stuff we did out there, you know, we really figured some things out that I shared with Billy, you know, and I, and, and I didn't get there because I didn't talk to him. You know, I took what he was telling me and I applied it and I figured it out. Who were the first people to fish out there on the Cape? I know Kenny Clett fished out there in the early years. Yeah. And, and Billy. Kenny, Billy, Hank. You know, I'm sure Harry was going out there. I'm sure Steve was there. You know, you got to remember, I was with Azo one time, so it had to be late 80s. We were off and it was crystal clear. I mean, it was like ocean fishing. And there was a school of tarpon coming from about 200 yards away. And I had seen Harry that morning and he gave me a fly. He goes, man, if you... See those tarpon back there throw this. And it was a white rabbit with a yellow rabbit collar. So I said to Azo, and Azo had all his flies and he was always prepared. I said, Azo, we got to put this fly on. So we put it on. I see him coming from a long, long ways. We get set up and they eventually make it. 
he threw that fly and the third fish jumped over the first one to eat it. And I thought, oh my God, this is, this is unbelievable. What a great fly. And we, you know, just, it started from there and you would get 10 shots and you'd hook eight. Was it that much different, that fly, compared to like maybe the a big black fly that everybody has been known to throw out there for the most part? We weren't using that because it was crystal clear. Right. So we, we changed to the darker flies in the muddy water and when we started dredging. And, right. you know, if the wind was blowing out of the east at 20, it was probably going to be a good day back there. Right. Because you could, you know, that fish, would, the water would be a little off color and they would bite so much better. Right. right. And it's in the lee side there. Yeah. How long did that white uh, rabbit strip last? Because, like, flies kind of have their window where they work well, yeah. really well. It's not that they're ever going to not work okay. I don't know that it... Did he win any tournaments back there with that fly? Harry? No, you. Um, with Azo. I'm sure you kept throwing that over we, the years. It just depended. You know, it depended if we were dredging or if we were in dirty water or clear water. And then Azo had his own versions of things. Right. And I would always get on him and go, how many of these did you tie? <clears throat> he said, oh, just one. I go, you can't have just one. What happens when they eat it and we lose it? Oh, I don't know. So, <laughs> Azo, I'm going to bring the audience into who Azo uh, is, a Japanese angler. And we can talk about your introduction to Azo. But Azo and you won five five Hollies, five classic tarpon tournaments together. What was, uh, so to talk about that, how did you get to know Azo? How did that come to be? Well, believe it or not, Ted Jurisic, was a great friend of mine, and he makes the Billy Pate reels and the T-Bores. So back in the 80s, he was selling reels to Azo in Japan. He had a fly shop in Japan. And he says, uh, hey, I got this guy from Japan coming that wants to go tarpon fishing. Maybe you could take him tarpon fishing and catch him a tarpon. I'm like, okay. So Azo comes into town, stayed at the Islander, and Ted was here, and we all got together and, you know, he introduced me and everything, and we started fishing. And Ted went with us a few times, hung out on the boat. And right from the get-go, Azo said, I want you to be my tarpon teacher. I want to learn how to catch tarpon. Was he conscious and aware of tournaments at that time, or he just no. wanted to be a good tarpon He fisherman? wanted to learn how to catch tarpon. I'm going to fish 40 days a year. Is that enough time? And you said, that's a start. I go, that'll get it started. <laughs> So we started fishing together and he would come and it was, uh, I want to say about 10 or 12 years fishing together. And then I started getting more serious about, I want to win one of these tarpon tournaments. I see all these tarpon. I know I can catch them. I need a guy that can get the job done. So I was fishing with a guy named Fred Arbona who owned Climax Leaders back in the day. And he was a trout fisherman. Never really been to the Keys, never really tarpon fished. Just a just a good angler, and I saw him at one of the shows, and I go, you're coming to Alamorada, and I uh, want to take you tarpon fishing. He's like, oh, okay, that sounds like fun. So he came down, and the first time we fished together, he caught 17 tarpon one day on the ocean. And I said, uh, Fred, next year we're going to fish the Holly tarpon tournament. I need an angler. You can get it done. He goes, oh, no, I don't do tournaments. I go, well, you're going to fish this one. Because I want to win one of these things. You got what it takes. I want to do it. So he had a company called Climax Leaders, and I was tying all this tarpon leaders, fly leaders, for tarpon fishing. I said, if we don't fish, you don't get any leaders. It's that simple. 
So against his will, he goes, all right, I'll come. No practice days, no fishing. I mean, we fished two days together, and one of them was that day. Comes back the next year to fish the Holly. Comes in Sunday, midday, kickoff. He's got a pair of shorts from Arizona that I don't think he'd really seen in a while that, <laughs> you know, he thought would be nice to wear. And he didn't bring much wardrobe, so he just came down. He goes, you know, against his will, all right, I'm going to do this tarpon thing, and let's go. So long story short, <clears throat> we're in contention to win the Holly on the last day. And Ralph Delf and, you know, back then the, the average team had about 10 to 12 fish to win it. And we were right in there with 9 or 10. Ralph Delf had 10 or 11. So we had to be on our game the last day if we wanted to win. Well, Arbona doesn't show up. So it's, you know, 7 o'clock. Everybody's gone, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. Well, we don't have cell phones, so there was no way to get a hold of anybody. So about 10 o'clock, I see him walking down the dock at Papa Joe's. And he's got his hand out. Like, don't even start with me. I overslept. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just the way it is. And I am fit to be tied. And, you know, I was just, I was hungry. You know, I wanted to win. I was competitive. You know, I had 10 spots I wanted to be at, and I wasn't going to be at any of them. So he gets in the boat. And he goes, just go wherever you were going to be at 10 o'clock. I go, I have no idea where I was going to be at 10 o'clock. How about this? We're going to go see if we can find a parking spot somewhere because everybody's going to be at the good spots. So we leave and I'm running. I'm thinking, how am I going to pull this off? Where am I going to go? And we went out toward Buchanan. And I'm looking and there's four boats in the pocket and on that bank. And there's two boats out at the point. So I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder if anybody's on that very end. So I get out there. Nobody's on the end. So I pull up and I go, all right, we got to give this a little time. Tide's right. We can certainly see now. You know, we got great visibility, middle of the day. And here comes a school of fish. And he gets his rod out and he's getting ready. And I can see the fish are going to go under the bow of the boat. And tide was falling pretty hard, so it was pushing them into us. And the fish go under the boat. And I'm thinking, well, maybe there'll be another school. So I kind of turn around and I'm you know, getting back up on the platform, trying to get situated with what am I going to do? And the next thing I know, he's got him on. He makes this cast going away, school at 10 or 15 tarpon. And that was his magic. He had, as he called it, I'm force feeding them. And he would make them eat it. He would just, he knew how to strip it. He knew how to wiggle it. We got him on. So we catch him. I get off the, the pole and we go after him and we catch him and I go, well, maybe there's some, you know, hope after all. And then we went, we caught two more and we won the Holly. So we ended up winning the tournament that day. We didn't leave the dock till 10 o'clock. Well, was Azo the best um, tarpon fisherman you've ever had on your bow? Yeah. Or were you guys just the best team? No, it was a combination. You know, Azo was a machine. I mean, it was... When you're dredging, he just... Through and through and through and through and through. Yeah. There was yeah. no break. No. Relentless. That's what, that's what he means by a machine. Yeah. Relentless, yeah. So with, with Arbona, we won. Yeah, how come, that, he, how come he didn't win again? How come he didn't He wasn't defend? coming back. He was one and done. He was one and done. I said, come on, you can't do that. Now, Azo and I hadn't made our deal yet. We're still fishing together. And Fred says, look, I'll come back to defend our title, but that's it. I'm not doing it again. And we ended up second place the next year. So now I need an angler. So we're at, we're at Key Tarpon Fishing, Azo and I, and I had shown him 
the sargassum weed floating by. And I said, Azo, check this out. I picked up a, a bunch of weed and I shook it on the, on the platform of the boat and the little shrimp and the crabs started falling out of it. You would have thought his finger went in the light socket. He's a oh, oh my God, holy, and he starts just as fast as they would jump, he was eating them. And he thought this was the coolest thing. He's got a, a pile of seaweed this high. He's got his feet under my casting platform. He's shaking and it's like a buffet. He's having all, breakfast. He's, all yes. you can eat. Sushi time. <laughs> he thought this was the coolest thing he'd ever seen. But he wasn't thinking about what the fish are going to eat, and this is their this is what the fish are eating. He he wanted to eat these things. Oh no, he he was like, oh, this is delicacy. This is you know this is really good. So he gets done, and I go, Azo, next year, tarpon tournament, Don Holly, you and me. He stands up, and he turns around, he looks at me, and he bows to me, and he says. Yes, my tarpon teacher, I am ready for competition. And he was. He went on with you to win five hollies and uh, and three gold cups. Yeah. You know, he was a really great competitor and one of the kindest men ever uh, that you'd see at the dock and around the, uh, you know, the banquets, the kickoffs, the, you know, gracious in every way. He was He was by the book in so many ways, you know, on a personal level, competitive level, equipment, leaders i mean everything was perfect well if you take a look what, what i'm fascinated by you if you take a look at at your track record you know your tournament record um not only have you won the inshore tournaments and the bay bones as well uh uh the tarpon events uh you haven't won a, a weightfish tournament we'll talk about that in a little bit but if you take a look at your offshore stuff you won the island marauda sailfly tournament the selfish challenge in palm beach a payout of one hundred and sixty thousand dollars won uh, the Swordfish Tournament with seven four swordfish in two days. The Swordfish Series, three times you won. Uh, the Cat K Bahamas Wahoo Tournament, the women's world record four pound, uh, tarpon record at 40 pounds. I mean, your resume of victories is outstanding. Um, why do you think you can go uh, either to the west or out to the east and fish the blue water so well? I just go fishing. But that's easy to say. Well, how do you but, make, you know, and you do your homework, but look, not anybody can go out and drop a line at 1,700 feet or 1,500 feet and catch a swordfish. Who who was your mentor offshore? Billy was your mentor in the inshore area, but offshore, you must have had somebody. You know, offshore really for me wasn't, wasn't hard because I grew up in Fort Lauderdale going offshore fishing. With you whom? Know? So, you know. I didn't didn't really have a father back then. My grandfather got me into fishing and and baseball and all that stuff growing up. And then as I got older, there were guys in the neighborhood, older guys that, you know, took me under their wing cuz they knew I could rig bait and I could do all the stuff that, you know, they could drive the boat and we could go fishing. So, I had I had a handful of guys in the neighborhood that had big center consoles, 25-foot center consoles. It was a big boat back then that would take me fishing. So I kind of learned a lot of it as a kid, you know, 16, 15, you know, fishing the Fort Lauderdale Billfish Tournament, fishing the city fishing festival in Fort Lauderdale, growing up on the piers, snook fishing. So I kind of just was fishing all the time. So I adapted to all that stuff pretty easy. And then I got the opportunity to go to the Bahamas and be a mate on some of the big sport boats, which I thought was the coolest thing ever because I just love that whole thing of the, the boats, the the marlin, you know, catching big fish and the whole bit. So I kind of 
grew up with that. And I and I did that through probably the mid to late 80s, even when I was here tarpon fishing. So I got some good experience and kind of learned what to look for. And, you know, unfortunately today, guys can look on, on the internet and learn about things pretty quick. But you need to know the fundamentals. You need to know the basics. You need to know this and this is what you look for for that. And that's the information that's missing in today's world. So growing up, you know, fishing, when you learn that recipe to fish, you can fish anywhere. What are what are some of those nuances offshore that most people wouldn't understand what you're talking about? You know, well, some of the, when you run out there, birds and current and stuff like that, how do you read the ocean? So if, for example, when I moved here, Billy would say, son, you need to learn how to read the birds. And I always thought, what are you talking, read the birds? How am I going to read the birds? They're flying around? I, I, I don't, never got it. It took me 20 years to understand what reading the birds meant. And that meant when you see pelicans diving, they're on bait. When you see that pelican dive and come up out of the water, you can tell by the way he eats the bait, what he caught. Right. So this was part of reading the birds. Dolphin fishing, for example. When you are dolphin fishing, looking for bigger dolphin, or nowadays just dolphin in general, you're looking for birds. So the birds are there because the dolphin are pushing the flying fish to the surface. So the fish are under the flying fish, chasing them under the birds. So now it's key to find that. Once you find that, are they going left or right? Meaning, are they going with the current or against the current? A lot of times your big dolphins swim into the current. A lot of times your small schoolie dolphin migrators, we call them, are going with the current up the road. So you could look at a set of birds and go, that's not what I want, and keep looking. Look for a different kind of a bird reaction. Correct. To what you're... Different behavior. Right. So the behavior of the bird is key in dolphin fishing, and guys like Brian Cohn have mastered, mastered how, how he reads the birds, and he'll go to 40 sets of birds and he'll find that one that has a 40-pound dolphin under it. Interesting. And, so all these big uh, boats and captains, when they go out, they're not necessarily looking for water depth. Of course, they want to get in that neighborhood, but they're keying on birds. Well, I think in the dolphin tournaments, they all have binoculars and stuff, right? They're always yeah. looking at the horizon. Yeah. And, yeah. But, and it, they, but that's the number one key that everybody's targeting, the birds. Yeah, because they're they're eliminating the the mystery. You know, they're... They're getting you closer to the hunt than just blind right. trolling. But that's for mahi, but it's is it the same with wahoo and sailfish and marlin too? Not, not so much on wahoo, but certainly with sailfish and marlin. Man of war birds, mm -hmm. you know, they used to call them marlin birds. So a lot of times the same thing, <clears throat> you know, marlin or sailfish is pushing up bait. They're the birds. You know, here in the Keys, we have a lot of showering sailfish and they're chasing the ballyhoos on the edge of the reef. So if you're looking down the reef and you see a blackbird, chances are there's something going on. So you yeah. check it out. And, you know, so many people are oblivious to that. They drive right by it and they go out to 130 feet and put their kite out or start trolling for a sailfish. And they just they just went by six of them that they didn't even know was there. I've, I've first I've heard about this a lot. And we've Nikki and I have been offshore a little bit uh, understanding you know, where to look for these things. But last year, it was very poignant to me when we were in Mags Bay, Mexico. We were down oh, there yeah. rooster fishing. And you had all these seagulls up on a sandbar. 
And when the tide started falling, that's when all the sardines used to come in towards this 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 edge and this bank, and all the pe- uh, uh, the pelicans start flying and diving. So they were all diving uh, because the schools of jacks were pushing all the sardines. Well, a little bit later in the tide, now all of a sudden we saw the frigate birds. So the pelicans were in one location and the frigate birds were in front of the pelicans. We noticed the flying fish were out there under the, uh, the frigate birds. And under the frigate birds were the flying fish and the rooster fish. Yeah. So the pelicans, uh, had all the the jacks, the big schools of jack under the pelicans. But once you started to see the the frigate birds flying, that's when we'd race over and get out in front of the frigate birds and fish for these flying fish, which had no chance because if they were in the air, uh, the frigate bird was going to eat it. If it was in the water, the rooster fish was going to eat it. He had no chance. Uh, It was uh, the killing fields, if you you were. And that's how we ended up targeting and catching these big rooster fish. And it was all because of those birds and the timing of birds. Yeah, timing is key. You know, finding them at the right time. If you're the first guy, you know, around here, it's hard because there's a lot of traffic. And, you know, there's people that go from set to set to set of birds. So you might get under a school of birds and, and there's nothing there because the fish are pushed down. You know, they've already gone, been hit a few times. So they're not up on the surface. They're down. And if you've got a tower boat, sometimes you can see them down deep. Um, so timing is key for that stuff and and sail fishing the same way. You know, you get the sailfish on the edge of the reef. You get the sailfish out in the deeper water too, where they might be, you know, balling a school of bait, school of sardines or something, and the man-of-war birds flying around. Um, it happened to me here one year in a, in a sailfish tournament. I saw a bird offshore, and I'm at Conk Reef with 25 other boats in a big tournament. And I see something going on and nobody's leaving. And I slid out there. And unfortunately, in the sailfish tournaments, you'd have to report, you know, I'm hooked up to a double quad. You can only fish four rods. So I knew going into this that as soon as I call in a quad, I'm going to be covered up. So we had to we had to be prepared. And as I'm getting to this bird, I'm telling my mate, I'm telling everybody in the tournament, have every single rod ready to go. And we had like a dozen spinning rods ready to go. Twelve. So, so that way, after you get those four fish in, you get four fresh rods. Oh, yeah. So we go in there, and there were a dozen sailfish on the surface. And I don't know what they were on. Obviously, they were on bait or something, but they were just kind of mingling around. We throw four rods. We got the quad on. And I hesitated a little bit to call it in, but they were. some of them were getting kind of close. We might get the release, so I, you know— Called in, we're hooked up, quad. And it wasn't by the time we caught the first four that I was covered up with everybody. So we kind of had to jump on everybody because we got them. And I think we ended up with seven out of the, you know, the pack. And all 12 of our rods have little pigtails at the top. So the game was over. It was short-lived, but it was super exciting. And, you know, that move right there was all because of a, a bird I saw offshore that looked like he was doing the right thing and no one else saw it. Why do you have to report if you are hooked up? That's just the way that the, the rules work here because you the committee boat has to acknowledge you're hooked up. You can't just, well, I guess you could call in, um, you know, a release, but here usually it's followed up by, you know, the release is followed up by hooked up so they can mark it and, you know, know that you had a fish on and fought it for a, a period of time and landing it. Do hmm. all the boats have a, uh, observers on the boats? No observers. Here in the Keys. I think the big Marlin tournaments they do. 
Yeah, and a lot of the Palm Beach yeah. tournaments they do. I was going to say, if you had an, an observer, you wouldn't have to call it in because, you know, you've got eyes on you anyway. Yeah, but like you said, you get, you know, you're hooked up to a quad, you call it in, and everyone wants to go where you're going because you just caught four fish. I know. Oh, yeah, and we're, we're you know, not even a mile away from them. Can you imagine if that happened in the Gold Cup? You get you get penalized yeah. for uh, for being a great fisherman because now all of a sudden your spot's gone. Oh yeah, well, but that you know that was the competitive edge, and and as soon as I called that in, I could just see black smoke, you know, from all these guys, Kalex and Relentless and everybody. They're they're, they're coming, you know, because they got their eye on me already. Like, what's he doing out there? And how they didn't pick up on the bird, I don't know, because they, they usually see them they just before I would. It. How much has uh, kite fishing changed the game of sail fishing? You know, kite fishing's been around a long time, and I don't know, um, hasn't really changed a lot other than it's just become the way to do it, especially north of here. With the live uh, goggle eyes. Yeah, goggle eyes, sardines, thread fins, pilchards. I but mean, you guys don't fly kites down here as much, we do, do you? We do, but most of the fish... Now, the last 10 years have been shallow chasing bait. You know, the tournaments that are winning right now are won by shallow fishing. And, sight, and how, sight fishing? How, sight fishing, yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. So that's casting to fish they see. Yeah. This might be surfing down sea or something. Yeah. Well, no. When So when they shower, yeah. you know, they start in about 100 feet. Oh, so shallow and, up and on the start, reef, yeah. And they start pushing this massive mat of ballyhoo inshore. And you just see it looks like it's raining, ballyhoo. Right. And the birds are down and, you know, all this stuff's going on. Well, there's this sailfish that's chasing these things. And you're trying to get to him and you're trying to get a bait to him before he eats. Because once they feed, a lot of times they're not interested in in your bait that you throw to them. So you got to have a good cast. And you got to get it in front of them and everything to get them to bite. And sometimes when there's more than one, you know, they got that little competition so you can hook up easier if there's more than one fish there but you have to so, chase them down with the boat to intercept that fish oh yeah. right oh, does, yeah. does that does the boat ever put those fish down no or they're oblivious to it i think they're oblivious you watch alex adler scott stanzik paul on the relentless these guys are masters at doing that stuff and they see a shower from a mile away and somehow they can get to it and find where that fish is swimming and what he's doing and catch them and sometimes they sit and they wait. They know it's coming, and that shower will happen. They'll be right in the middle of it. How so, hard is it to get these fish to eat a fly? Well, if you look at the scoreboard, pretty hard. You know, a lot has to happen with a fly and a sailfish. You Especially know, an Atlantic sailfish. Atlantics are very hard because we use live bait to tease them. Mm-hmm. You know, unlike in the Pacific where we do it, you uh, troll, you know, with lures or you troll with dead bait. It, it's a lot more user-friendly to get a bite out of one. And, um, you know, with the live bait here, so many things can happen. He bites it, kills it. If you don't have another one instantly ready to go to re-tease him, the fish fades away. If he takes it off the wire, because you're not using hooks, you're wiring him on. If he takes it off the wire, he's gone. So then you got to get him from point A to point B, kind of like Pac-Man, where you're, you know, winding that bait away slowly. The guy with the fly rods getting ready, there's a very short window from when that ballyhoo comes out of the water and that sailfish is looking, you know, where'd it go? And that fly has to be there and he's got to be able to see it. So you really have to, everything's got to go right. And that fish has got to get close enough to the boat so you can throw to him. You can't throw to his face because he can't eat it head on. So you have to throw it off to the side. So he, you know, that side bite going away bite is what you want. 
Do you have a preference? I mean, you love bone fishing, but I think tarpon fishing was your favorite uh, inshore fish. Um, chasing these offshore fish, obviously, the way you just explained it is fascinating. Do you have a preference of what fish you'd rather go catch in a given day? You know, I like Do you have a favorite. I I don't know. I'm I'm a favorite with all of them when they cooperate. Right. And when they're biting, you know, I hate sailfish when they don't bite. I hate it when, you know, I throw at tarpon all day and I don't get a bite. Um, this to say you have the perfect offshore day and the perfect tarpon day. Well, that's, you know, the the logo for this store is a is a sailpoon, which are the my two favorite fish, a tarpon and a sailfish. And those two fish you can catch on a fly rod. And to me, that's one of the coolest things that I really enjoy doing. And it's special. You know, not everybody does it because a lot of people are in, intimidated. You know, how can you catch a 100-pound tarpon on a fly rod? That's, you know, they don't understand the mechanics of it and how it's possible. They don't understand how you can catch a sailfish. So some guys are great anglers and great uh, sail fishermen, but they've never tried something different. You know, they only know one way how to catch them the other way. So you're just changing it up a little bit, making it right. more interesting. And that's what I find fun about it. Mm -hmm. And it and it's a challenge, like all of it. And when you're successful, it's the greatest feeling to catch them on that type of tackle. I mean, if I never catch another one on bait, I'm happy. Right. You know, it's it's something different and, and it needs to be preserved in that it's different and it's yeah. special. And it means so much more to people than to go catch 10 sailfish. I mean, I love a 10 sailfish day in a tournament, but outside of that, what are you what are you going to what are you going to do with 10 sailfish? I mean, it's a great day. Right. Okay, so but you have one more day to live. What are you fishing for? You got to give us that scenario. What's what are you fishing for? You have one more day. If if I had one more day, I would probably be in Casa Vieja trying to catch a black marlin on a fly rod. Have you caught one before on a fly? No. A I, marlin on a fly before? Oh yeah. Yeah. I caught a 300-pounder in in Casa Vieja about 3 years ago. Tell me, but tell me about that fish. Three hours and forty-five minutes. Never jumped, and I had one on for three. The three days we were there, I had one on every day, and the third day I was fishing with Chris Sheeter on the rum line, and he's since passed, um, but phenomenal captain. And he goes, Randy, here comes your marlin again. And I'm like, how big is it? He goes, oh, you don't want to know. And I was like, how bad could it be? How bad could it be? Throw it out there, piles on it. And and a blue marlin on a fly rod, you know, is very aggressive. I mean, they do not mess around. When you throw it out there, they pile on it. It's not like they nip it or they think about biting it. They pile like, I mean, out of the water, head and shoulders, down on this thing to eat it. It's like a, like a lion. <laughs> oh, it's my gosh. a piece of bait. Super exciting to me, not yeah. for everybody, but for me. So I've got my... Billy Pate bluefin reel that you know is a big arbor diameter and it's shrinking <laughs> like to no end and you can't have much tension when you're fly fishing 20 pound tippet so just the drag in the water can break, break your line sure so we're about three and a half hours into this and Chris had a he took phenomenal pictures had big cameras and all these big lenses you know for his photos and he was kind of looking. He's, I see him up there looking through his camera. And I'm thinking, what he's looking at. And I'm, you know, my line's straight down. And I've been in this position to where I'm, 
not a happy guy. So he goes, hey, I see your fish behind the boat. He goes, it's swimming on the surface. I see your fly. Oh, really? It's back behind the boat. He goes, start, start reeling. I'm going to back up real slow. We back up, we back up, we back up, back up. Got all the way to where he was swimming. And he was on the surface just like I wasn't even there. And I'd been pulling as hard as I could with what I had. And we got up there. And, and I'll never forget, it got to the left corner of the boat. I was in the left corner. And I kind of reached out. And I, you know, tick, kind of got the nail knot. And to myself, I'm thinking, all right, that's good enough for me. Right. And the fish kind of sank out. And he went under and came out the side of the boat. Well, Chris knew what was coming. And I look up and he's got his camera ready to go. And he's got the lens and he just started pushing the button. And this thing came out from the side of the boat, just going away, greyhounding. And you're looking at the back of this thing and the size of this marlin with a fly in his face. And he got some spectacular jumps of this fish going away. And after a couple of minutes of him jumping out of sight, the fly came out. Perfect. That's what I said. Could happen in 20 minutes, but it's three and a half hours. Yeah, three hours and 45 minutes. Um, the techniques uh, and the methodology of bill fishing, from what I understand, that you have a really heavy uh, fly line, a heavy head, so that once that fish eats your fly, and during the fight, the fly line gets below the fish, which makes the fish want to swim to the surface. Am I correct with that? Well, a lot of the lines they're using are shooting heads. Right. And very short. So depending on the grain, you know, 500, 800 grain line, um, it can add a little weight. But to be honest with you, when you're fighting a sailfish, for example, a Pacific sailfish, you don't fight them that long. You know, I mean. Right. They flop around and get tired. Yeah. yeah. Most of these fish, you pull hard on them. Um, five minutes, you know, I mean, right. 10 minutes is a long fight. So it's interesting you say that because I had one in the tournament this year. We have the sailfly in, in Casa Vieja and he was wrapped up. Well, you can't grab, there's nothing to grab. And the leader's all wrapped around his body. So part of the scoring is if you remove the fly, you get, you get maximum points. Right. Well, I knew the way he was tangled up that we couldn't get the fly out. So I just free spooled it and I just let the fish swim, swim off with my line and it all fell off. Right. Because of the weight, the weight of the line. And like you say, he was, he was angling up a little bit, right. but that line and that drag got, got him untangled. And a few minutes later I started pulling on him and he came back and everybody just looked at me like, what just happened? Right. Because I was reading this last week about Jake Jordan, of whom spent a lot of, a lot of time with billfish in Costa Rica and Guatemala. And I guess that uh, the idea is to use a really heavy fly line. In the past, I know that when I did it, we had just like a, a shooting head, but it was a floating line. But if the fly line is above and the pressure's coming from the fish from above, the fish wants to go down, it wants to sound. But if that fly line is heavy enough and, and when you're fighting the fish with little drag, that heavy head gets below the fish and it makes him want to swim to the surface. Yeah. Against the resistance. Against the resistance yeah. of the heavy fly line, which I found just fascinating. Well, he, Jake is, is great. I mean, he's been all over the world catching these things and a lot of blue marlin. You right. Know, he's probably caught more blue marlin than anybody on a fly rod. Right. And, uh, you know, again, guy very passionate about fly fishing and what he does and God bless him. I right. mean, he, he's, 
he still to this day goes to Costa Rica, you know, goes to Guatemala. He's still at it. You know what? I always, when I see him at the trade shows, I give him a hard time because he comes <laughs> in and he goes tarpon fishing. But the way he tarpon fishes, he fishes Bahia Honda in a falling tide at night. Oh, yeah. You know, and I said, Jake, that is not tarpon fishing. If you can't see the fish before you chuck the fly, that is, that, no, no, that's blind casting, that's trolling, that's dredging, you know, but I can't help but bust his chops because he's at the age he doesn't want to pull a skiff down an edge, you know, during the daylight hours and that falling tide, there's thousands of fish under his boat and he's going to catch some, catch a fish. You ever, you ever tried it? We, uh, we've we've done it in different scenarios, different channels, and yeah. we love to did, do it. Did you I, catch them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I would, but, you know what? I would rather just throw a plug rod. Yeah. It's easier. Instead, fall, instead I, I hate false casting to a fish I don't see. Yeah. You know, when you're dredging, yeah. like the holly, like uh, in, in a stormy day, and you're back in the mud or a channel somewhere, uh, that is, the, the I hate it. Like, Nikki, I'd rather put a big black hoagie worm on a spinning rod. But, you know, it it's one of those things that you get educated and especially tournament fishing i think i became a better guide and better at things because of pressure because of a tournament situation having to figure it out right you know that's what mitch Shaw said about you regardless of the conditions mitch uh, said you can you you're a fishy guy you can figure it out yeah well like with azo everybody thought all of the fish that we would catch was in the hole or it was off the cape dredging and the truth is, not all of them were. Right. There were times where we would we would get around somebody out of I mean, I remember John Donnell and Bim Gill were out there one day. We just started pulling up, kind of say hello, you know, not something you do nowadays. But back then, we used to be pretty friendly on the water. Sure. You see somebody, hey, how you doing? You'd talk for a few minutes. And I'll never forget we pulled up there and, you know, John's like, oh, 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 Randy, oh, oh, oh hey, man, what's going on? And What are you doing here? <laughs> and and I go, you guys seen anything? Nah, there's a couple of fish here. And I'm like, hey, so 60 feet. He's laying right right to the left of their boat. And he's like, oh, oh. He casts the next thing you know, we're hooked up. <laughs> and John's like, what? Oh, I just, That's my fish. <laughs> what are you doing? We're like, see ya. And, what, but what, that that's how it was. What was it like to communicate with Azo when he didn't speak English very well? Um, he it, spoke enough to understand what you were saying. It, it was interesting because it almost felt like I, I had to speak a, like a different language, and it wasn't Japanese, and it wasn't Spanish, and it was just he could understand it. You know, like I would – Azo would uh, be in a slump, you know, where things weren't working – and I'd be like, hey, so what, what's the matter? What's going on? I, I, I told you, you know, to the left and you're throwing it to the right. And, it, you know, I said 40 feet, you do it 90 feet. And he turns around, he says, my brain is very smart. I'm a very smart man, but my arm, it's no working. <laughs> <laughs> He's a funny man. So how come you, how come you never won a weight fish tournament? Um, well, when I was fishing with Azo, I was fishing with Carlos Solis. So in the, during uh, the weight fish tournaments, the gold, the gold cup. cup. Yeah. And, um, we just never, we had a lot of bad luck. I had, uh, one day he fell at <laughs> hooked a big fish and fell in the bottom of the boat. I thought he broke his back Oh. and you know, we lost, we lost one of my rods and a Seamaster. And, um, you know, I was trying to keep up with the rod and he's on the deck and he's out of breath. And I mean, I'm thinking he's really hurt. So we just had 
crazy things happen. You know, right? That, it's that hard. It's that, hard. That's to like win asking, these why don't you win a medal at the Olympics? Well, there's there's a reason why, but, and a lot of times, look, it is a team event. And Nikki and I were speaking about this mor- this morning, and you and I were speaking about the energies between angler and guide. And sometimes that combination just doesn't work. So maybe had you fished with Azo in a weight fish tournament, you would have won that weight fish tournament. But he had Kenny Collette. Yeah. You know, and talk to me about that dynamic between angler uh, and guide when it's really happening and when it's not. Well, you know, with, for example, with Carlos. Great friend, great client, phenomenal angler. He can throw 80 feet left or right, doesn't matter. He's ambidextrous. Yeah, and and can put it where it needs to be. But we just never, we just never had it all come together in the in the Gold Cup. And I think one year we might have won the biggest fish or something, um, but it just never worked out. And then with with Azo. Kenny Collette, who I knew from Fort Lauderdale, was coming down, and I kind of put those two together right. to fish in the Gold Cup. Or, yeah, in the Gold Cup. So they were kind of doing what we were doing in the Holly, kind of the same general area, and you know, Kenny had his spots and stuff. Mm-hmm. But they developed that chemistry, and they had it going on. And the last thing I was going to do was, you know, ditch Carlos to fish with Azo. Right. You know, you just didn't do that. And then he fished with Pat Ford during the Golden Fly. So the Golden Fly comes along. And I got Pat Ford in the early years. And unfortunately, this guy, Andy Mill, was fishing too. (laughs) And between Hoover or Spear, whichever one you were fishing with, I think both of them back then maybe. And um, Tahara. Yeah, Tahara and I won that five times together. It was was just about beat Andy. It wasn't about winning. It was if we beat Andy, we're probably going to get there. And with Pat, for example, we were talking. He was close. You guys were what, close a number of times. What we caught a one fifty, a one fifty five one morning, sun up, and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to do it. This is the year we're getting Andy. There's no way he's catching a one fifty five, <laughs> but you're allowed five weight fish. So what happens? Andy comes in with a one twenty five and a one fifteen, and then the next day he's got a one thirty and a ninety five. So now our one fifty five is out the window. And we need, we need now four over a hundred to compete. And one morning with Pat Ford out off the beach, we had two fish in a row, and they were good ones, one twenty-five, one thirty-five, and you had to lip gaff them. And I went to lip gaff this thing, the first one, and I lip gaffed it, and I and I pulled it in the boat on the deck, and when I did, he kicked his tail. And he just kept going, like shot right over the bow. Back into the ocean. Back into the water, broke us off. And I just looked at Pat and I went, you have got to be kidding me. Like we just spent an hour and a half catching this thing. And, you know, you, you're that close. Right. You know, I've already got the points on the board because now all we got to do is strap this thing and we're good to go. Right. 30 minutes later, we do the exact same thing again. Two in a row that day. So, you know, you stuff like that. That's just energy and bad luck. You just look at these tournaments and you go, well, yeah, I don't know how many times I was bridesmaids in the, in the golden fly. I hate to think probably quite a few. And then I can't blame Pat, you know, wasn't his fault. He did a great job. And, you know, 
it just didn't work out. You know, it's interesting in that it's really hard to close the deal, regardless of what kind of competition it is. Uh, you we're watching the Olympics now, you know, and a skier from Switzerland, Odermatt, in the fourth to the last gate, he squashes out and is off the, out of the course, and he's trained his entire life. Look, I was a skier. I skied in two Olympics and four world championships. So let's just say in each of those events, the downhill was around two minutes. So the two Olympics, that was four minutes. My entire life from the age of eight, eight years, no, nine years old until when I retired at 28. All that period of time came down to four minutes. Oh, yeah. And in fishing, it's hard to close the deal. You're leading a tournament, it's hard to close. A tennis tournament, it's hard to close. And until you get the, you're at the buzzer a lot, uh, it's hard to understand the dynamics of closing. And the whole team environment in, with fishing, uh, to me, is fascinating because it is a team. You can't catch the fish that you can't see. you got to have the right guy and the, guy, and the angler or the guy's got to have the right angler. And that is magic when you find that window like you had with Azo. Well, and the first one's the hardest, you know, to, to win and know you can win. I remember fishing with... with uh, the swordfish tournament that we won, the Alamorada swordfish tournament. The guy and his son never even seen a swordfish, let alone caught one. Thought it would be cool to fish this tournament. It was out of the Chica. And, you know, it was a father and son. They listened when we got out there and I explained, here's what we're going to do. Here's how it's going to work. And they they were receptive to all of it. And they they listened and they 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 didn't make any mistakes. And sometimes it's it looks so easy and yet they just understood what we were doing, even though they hadn't done it. And, you know, everything went right. We caught seven swordfish. I think we hooked seven. And these guys won the tournament and the whole deal. And the guy said, the guy, when we started, he had no intentions of being competitive or winning. He's like, we've never fished a tournament. We, you know, we certainly don't expect to win. And I was looking at it as, well, it's a charter for two nights. So at least I'm going to get, you know, paid for a couple of days to go fishing. We're going to have a, a good time and maybe we'll catch one big enough to eat. And we end up winning. So here's my question here. You can win an offshore tournament with a neophyte, but you can't win an inshore tournament with somebody who doesn't know how to do this. And it's not a refined angler. So when you're offshore in those tournaments, is it the boat and the captain that's winning those tournaments? How much of the end and the crew but how much are those tournaments and big fish caught by the angler and the angling skill of the person who's got the rod in their hand? Well, let's face it. The, the tarpon tournaments, bonefish tournaments are technical, and they're technical to the angler. So that angler has to understand what to do. Sail fishing, for the example, kite fishing, you know, the boat is going to back up on the fish, but not really much because... What we've all learned, the harder you back down chasing a sailfish, potentially you're spooking other fish around you. So you look at these guys that win, they walk softly. Are they dead boating those fish? No, but they move very slow. They, 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 they think about, you know, I want to turn the boat this way. And if I do that, the kites are going to go this way, maybe to get in front of another fish coming. It's, they're not racing around. You know, everything's kind of done slower and it's done a little more methodical where you're you're thinking about 
that next fish to bite. So your angler is really just winding them in, keeping the line tight. And but you're, you're still fishing. You're still fishing. Right. And you still have lines in the water. You have lines in the water. Because a lot of these tournaments are six, seven lines. So you've got two kites with three baits and usually a guy in the bow with a with a flat line. So one of the biggest things is just not getting tangled up. You know, once you start turning on fish and you've got three or four on. I can't even imagine. Now, now it becomes another problem to the captain because you're spread out in different directions. You got the kites wrapped around your tower. You know, you're you're going in circles to try to get that release on the fish next to the boat. So a lot's going on with the captain then, but the angler still, his part, I can't let the fish get under the boat. I can't get tangled up with the next guy that's got a fish on. So the, the angler does become very important in being skilled how to how to fight his fish and how to keep from getting tangled or losing it. So it's a different, different type it's of. a whole different experience because that is a combination of the guy driving the boat to keep you from being too far stretched out. And the mates. And, and the mates and everybody working together. Yeah. So you've got like eight people who are really important of managing all of that going on. Whereas the, you know, the inshore stuff, it's a, it's a guide. I can only get you there. Right. You know, it is 100% up to you when you throw that fly that you get them to bite it. And, you know, our success is coming from you being on the bow and making a good cast. I can just take you to where I think they're going to be mm-hmm. type of thing. You ever see any square groupers out there? <laughs> uh, I have a grouper. Well, I have a grouper story when I first moved here that I haven't really told much, but. Perfect. So I'm at, <laughs> the I time told, is right. I told you when I came down here, I was at Bud Mary's and Oz Keggy, who was from Fort Lauderdale. I moved down here with him. Well, I have a little flats boat and I bought a Terry bass boat that was kind of a popular skiff down here at the time. And I paid $5,000 for boat motor and trailer had an inline 90 on it and had carpet all over it and uh jimmy albright had one so how bad could they be right so i got this skiff and i'm learning how to go bone fishing and go w- learn my way around because i can already see these guys are independent they got their own thing going this is pretty exciting and i had caught a few bonefish you know already and i just thought it was cool so i'm at bud mary's i'm i'm gonna go bone fishing it's dark and I'm waiting for a little bit of daylight so that I can, you know, g- leave the marina because I, I didn't really know my way around or, you know, that much anymore. And I wasn't going far, but I needed to see where I was going. So I was waiting. And evidently, everybody else was tired of waiting, unbeknownst to me. So I'm kind of sitting in my boat thinking about it. And all of a sudden, the lights turn on like I'm in a stadium. And there's DEA. There's cops. There's people. I'm surrounded with guns. I'm surrounded by these guys that aren't smiling. And there's 10 bales floating in the marina. I had no idea. They were five feet from my boat. So. And they were waiting for somebody to come pick them up? Oh, yeah. Well, they thought that was me. Yeah. And once they figured out that I wasn't the guy, I was just in the way. They wanted to speed things up. And I'll never forget leaving in the dark and like, I'll just take my happy ass somewhere else, <laughs> have a nice day. And I'm bouncing off of these things as I'm pulling away from the dock. Wow. And and that just resonated with me to no end of, 
you know, and that was big going on in the 80s right. down here. I just wanted no part of it. Did you watch the Netflix series uh, Bloodline? Yeah. Absolutely. How accurate was that? Um, some of it was pretty accurate, right. you know, but it, it was a little hard to follow, some of it too. But I, I thought it was very interesting. I watched it all. And, um, you know, there was certainly a different way of things happening down here back then. And, you know, it wasn't like an outsider was really part of the family, you know, right. when you would come here. So right. same thing in Aspen. We had the same stuff out there. Yeah. Um, but I was fascinated by the bloodline because, you know, it was happening at the Murata Bay and, you know, the yeah. restaurants and the beaches you could recognize, you know. Uh, the small little fishing village of Isla Morada that was a, a big drop-off point. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah. let's go back to um, your early years in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, baseball was a big part of your life, as was fishing. Um, tell me about how you gravitated to fishing and ended up here in the Keys. Well, like I was saying, my grandfather would take me to Loxahatchee when I was a kid cane pole fishing off the bank and I thought a mudfish was the coolest thing back then to catch they were big I couldn't catch a bass but I catch mudfish now so we would go on the weekends and uh, so I kind of got the taste of it doing that never out of a boat so as I started growing up I was into bicycles like I had the coolest bicycle in town and it was, you know, had chrome wheels and it had, it was, you know, just wasn't like the other bicycles. You know, it was a Schwinn instead of a Huffy because they were cooler. And then I would take that bicycle and I'd go to the canals and I would, you know, throw my Rapalas and stuff and catch Snook and, and Jacks and stuff. So I got a taste of it early as a kid fishing and knew that the canals weren't far from my house so I could get to them. So about 10 years old. I, I started seeing, you know, these custom rods from Bill Boyd's Bait and Tackle. And I thought, man, I I really want one of those. I can't have this cool bike and no cool fishing rod. But I can't afford them. And my mom wouldn't buy me a $200 custom Bill Boyd fishing rod. So I thought, all right, well, maybe she'll buy me the parts. And I can put a bicycle together. How hard is a fishing rod? So that's how it all started. She bought the parts for me. And I started putting them together, not really schooled by anybody, just going by what I've seen or the rods that I had were, uh, you know, from Golden Triangle back then. And um, I thought something I could do. Well, I got into it and it really became a big part of my life growing up because I would be in my bedroom wrapping rods and, and doing this stuff. And it just entertained me. And, and I was really fascinated with the whole thing, how cool they could be. I actually have two hanging up right there were the first two I ever wrapped. And I happened to get them back from a, a, one of my friends in the neighborhood that sold their house. But, and I played baseball. My grandfather loved baseball games. He would take me to Lockhart Stadium. We would watch the Yankees play. And I loved baseball. And I thought baseball was cool. So growing up, you know, little league and farm league and senior league and, and, you know, all of this stuff, I was a, I was a pitcher and, you know, I, I could hit pretty good back then. So it was kind of weird to be a pitcher and a, and a good hitter. I would always, you know, most pitchers will bat number nine. I would bat number four. So it was kind of different. And it just followed me through high school. And, and you know, later on, I became um, 
really caught up in, in the baseball more than the fishing, but still doing all three, fishing, building rods, and baseball. And so when did you move down here to the Keys? 81. So in, in uh, I actually worked for Tommy Green. He was my first kind of real paying job as a rod wrapper. And uh, I had met him, and he had saw what I was doing, and I went to work for Tommy Green, which I thought, man, this guy is just the biggest bully, you know, just a hard ass. And I didn't get it. No idea. I'm 16, 17, and this guy's busting my chops telling me I'm doing it wrong, and I got to come in on Saturday and, you know, all of these things. So anyways, I, I worked there for quite a while, and then, you know, things happened and, you know, got busy with other stuff and moved on. Um, Did you ever snook fish with Tommy and uh, George Copeland Copl- no. up there? Oh, yeah. So it's kind of funny looking back on it because, you know, at the end of the day, when they first started doing this stuff, it was like, you want to go snook fishing with us? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in. Snook kings of the world. And we would go up there, you know, Roosevelt Bridge, 10 cent, 25 cent, Flagler, all these different bridges. And I'm 16, 17 years old. I'm just trying to understand it all. And, you know, live mullet, live sand perch, nine foot rods, 100 pound, straight, 100 pound, no leader, 100 pound to the hook. And when you hook these things, you you just hung on. And, uh, you know, they would never bite away from the bridge. They always bite, you know going under and kept going <laughs> under. But we had some just phenomenal nights of doing that stuff with them. And Tommy was so nice that uh, some days if we snook fished real late, he would let us take a nap in the bathroom about midday when we were, you know, wrapping rods, dragging. <laughs> to be like, Tommy, I got I to gotta sleep. He'd be like, go in the bathroom, lock the door. I'll give you two hours. <laughs> so, and we're doing it again tonight. So he was, he was very instrumental with me, you know, wrapping rods and fishing and all that stuff. And so was George Copeland, you know. And um, I had a store here back in 1986 I sold in 93 called World Class Outfitters. And when I sold the store, I called Tommy. Hadn't talked to Tommy in quite a while. And I called him and I thanked him for the education he gave me on the tackle business. And I didn't realize what I had learned from him as a kid. But I called him and I said, I get it. I know why you were the way you were, and and I didn't realize what I had learned when I was working for you, but I do now because I've been in that position for the last six or seven years, and I just sold my store, and I wanted to thank you for it. And it kind of opened the door for us to talk again, and, and I would talk to Tommy every couple of weeks, just, hey, how you doing? What's going on? And, uh, you know, we kind of created a, a another friendship again. Right. But... Um, it was, I guess, about 80. I was at, I went to Fort Lauderdale College and played ball there, and their team was like the Bad News Bears. It was terrible. <laughs> and and I think I think it was for a reason with the, the scout. His name was Fred Ferrara, and I was at a, at a, uh, a get-together at Lockhart Stadium. They would do these, in spring training, they would do like camps where guys could come and train and, and like a, you know, like a little tryout for things. And he said, um, where are you going to school? I said, I'm not in school. He goes, well, you're never going to play ball unless you go to school. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm, I'm a free agent. I want to go play. And I was, I was a pitcher and, you know, threw very hard, you know, mid nineties and, you know, a little bit faster in high school. So he writes down on this piece of paper, the coach at Fort Lauderdale college, he goes here, go see this guy. 
you're going to school. And I went and I signed up for college and I got my books and my uniform and everything and played a year there and um, didn't have a very good season, lost a lot of games. But I had one of the coaches come over and say, hey, if you want to play for us next year, we'd love to have you. I thought, well, that was kind of cool. And I went to Broward Community College next year and signed out of there and played with the with the Florida State League, the Dodgers and Bureau. And uh, the next year, I threw my arm out. I made a pitch and my arm wasn't working anymore and didn't know why. Just knew that I had to lift it up to move it around and, you know, something wasn't right. Well, in the early 80s, nobody knew anything different. Oh, it's your rotator cuff. It's Tommy John. It's your elbow. It's something. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. There's more, there's more going on than that. Well, I just figured, you know, when you're on a pedestal like I was and you fall, I'm, I'm at the bottom of the barrel. You know, I'm going to have to start all over again because I have an injury. I'm a young guy and I didn't think it was going to work. And Oz Keggy, who I, uh, you know, kept real close with and friendly, says, hey, I'm moving to the Keys. You want to go? And I was like, yeah, I've had it with Fort Lauderdale and I want something new. And and I, I guess I was a little depressed because I got hurt. Never thought I was going to not play baseball. That was always going to be my thing. Right. And uh, so I moved here with him. And um, I want to say like 4th of July weekend, 81, somewhere in there. And it all started from there and had a little rod shop, started, you know, doing more in the fishing and just kind of fit in, met Billy and, uh, you know. The rest was history. Everybody has fishing rods that are broken. Yeah. And everybody sees a fancy rod they can't afford, but they want one. So. And that's how you got started. I mean, you 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 made mention that your mom wouldn't buy you this rod, but she bought you the parts at ten years of age, and you started wrapping rods. And here you are, yeah, fifty some years later, um, with the Island Marotta Fishing Outfitters. I mean, I remember you built me a bunch of rods when Azo uh, was bringing blanks in from Japan. Yeah, uh, beautiful, and a couple sage rods with my fancy name, and you know all <laughs> the stuff that uh, you do so well. Um, it's been a hell of a ride for you, Randy. You know? Oh, it has. I I don't have any regrets, and you know, I I kind of do what I do. If I can do it, I want to do it. I don't want to wait and do something later. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, a lot of people view it differently. You know, oh, I can't do that until this. Oh, I can't do that because I don't have the money. I can't do this, and if I can figure out a way to do it, I'm doing it. Do you What's... still love fishing more than other ever? Yeah, yeah. Don't, what I don't like right now is struggling. I don't like to go fishing and struggle. And when it's bad conditions and you got to really put your head down and grind. That's, but you know what? Bad, that's every day. Bad for, uh, <laughs> for us. <laughs> bad conditions never scared me. You know, matter of fact, um, I learned how to guide, and probably one of my biggest biggest successes was from bad weather fishing, like bone fishing. You know, Rick, uh, Rick Murphy's like that. Yeah, you have a terrible tarpon day. It's raining. There's a there's a uh, hurricane coming, tropical storm. They're catching fish. Oh my god, they yeah. and so it's is unbelievable. Randy. And that's what. Well, you're, I you're I look really good at that too. I looked at my my calendar and I went, if I don't start fishing when the weather's bad, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna win at this. I'm I'm gonna starve because I got more cancellation because the wind blows. Yeah, or it's a bad day. So I was at the Lorelei blowing. 30, easy, nobody went, and my guy shows up and he goes, well, what are we going to do? 
like, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to go bone fishing. And I'll make this real easy. You can pay me $50 a bonefish. Or you can pay for the trip, which we were just doing a half day. was like $225 or something mm-hmm. back then. And he kind of looks at me funny and he goes, 50 a bonefish? I'll take the 50, he says. He goes, he goes well, God, I don't know. When can I tell you? <laughs> right now. I said, <laughs> I was chomping. I wanted to go. Yeah. Because I wanted to see if I could do this. I said, I'll tell you what, you can do it when you catch your first one. How's that? So he goes, let's go. So we go to and we get there and we throw out the shrimp. And within a few minutes, we got them on. I said, what do you think? He goes, I think your half day is just fine. I said, okay. We caught 20. <laughs> so this it, is your mistake. You should have said, I want to know right now before he caught no, that first I, fish. I didn't. Look, had he said that and, and you know, it didn't work out, I didn't, you know. I want to have him dish out. I, was, I wasn't looking for the failure. I was looking for the pressure to do it and knew I could. Yeah. And it was certainly the right condition. So when we got back, you know, again, I'd put the boat on the trailer. Billy goes, well, how'd you do? I go, well, you're not going to like this. He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, we went to we went bone fishing. And he goes, you smacked him, didn't you? I go, well, we caught quite a few. And, you know, he had done that, you know, was not not something that he wasn't aware of. And when I told him what I did, he's like, that's a good day. But certainly didn't tell me, go to go to and fish this corner right, or right. go to Tavernier. He would just he would just say, there's something you can go do. You can go fishing. You can take this man and have a good day. Right. But he'd still let you figure it out on your own. Right. And that was a big turning point for me when when I knew I could catch them when the weather was bad. I thought anybody can catch them on a nice day. Sure. And then it turned into snook and redfish and tarpon and you know you just start broadening what you're going after, and especially tarpon fishing. If you found where there was a bunch of tarpon and the weather got bad, well they didn't go anywhere. They're not going to roll, but they're there. Mm-hmm. And just fish, just go fishing. And I, I started fishing a lot more than waiting to see something. You've got a great story. You got a great story. The big spectrum. I got a great life. I yeah, mean, it's do. been a, it's been a, a good ride being here. This was the best move I could have ever made in my life to, to be in a place like this and meet the people that I've met, have the success that I've had, and um, you know that's part of this store is to to share that with everybody and still, you know be involved and have my identity still as a guide but you know i'm this is 40 years into it i'm not going to fish 250 days anymore you know billy went to the end he says i am not getting out of the skiff when i'm when i can't do it i'm out of the skiff but i'm going to go to the end and he did right and god bless him because that's what he wanted to do he didn't want to do anything else he almost it's amazing how he died on the pulling platform yeah he fished uh, right up to the day he died yeah. We should all be so lucky. Exactly. Anything you'd like to add uh, to this conversation? You know, I'm. I really like what you guys are doing. I think it's important for everybody to tell their story and for this to be captured and kept, because thirty, forty years from now, when people hear these stories and you know they they hear and see what things were like, you know, I don't know that they're going to be. We're ever going to see the stuff that that we got to see in the in the 90s and the big bonefish and all that stuff. Maybe, but
but there were some special moments and things that probably won't happen again. Right. And it's great that the people that did it can share, you know, what it was like and yeah. what they've done and how they got there and, you know, maybe encourage more people to figure it out, you know. Well, it couldn't be more poignant than having Billy on the podcast uh, a little bit more than a year ago, and he's now gone. Yeah. And I'd... for the rest of time, people are going to know his story from from his his lips. And, you know, and, you know I, I watch these things and listening to Billy's story and his podcast with you and talking about riding his horse to the Chica. We talked about a lot of things over the years. We never talked about him riding a horse to Chica. <laughs> so it was it was interesting Revealing. for me, yes. you know, knowing him as, as well as I did and hearing his story and hearing more about his family. And, you know, I knew him for 40 years and there was something I didn't know. And he talked about it on your podcast. So I think it's just a great thing. And I'm, I'm really honored to be a part of it. Well, we are grateful that you're here and joining us. Uh, your story is very much deserved. Um, you've got a big history, both offshore and inshore, and your name is very prevalent uh, in the fishing capital of the world here in Island Marotta, Florida. So thank you, Randy. Thank you. And many people think you're one of the fishiest guys down here, and you have a beautiful shop, and it's great to see you again. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad we got to do it. For sure. Thanks thank you, so much. Randy. Awesome, guys. Great knowing you. Yeah, man. Great having you as a good pal. I appreciate it. Randy Tao and his little shop is a staple of all fishermen in Island Marotta. His beautiful rods have been collected for decades by many, and his diverse fishing skills are extraordinary and respected by all. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.